Take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 3 as we continue in our study of this great book. And as we, before I read the text this morning, I wonder if we could just pause and pray for a moment. We had one of our ladies to become a bit ill and, and everything just a few minutes ago, and they're dealing with her and she's fine, but some of you saw that, and I wanted to let you know that Marilyn Clanche is doing okay, but we want to pray for her right now. So let's just bow together and pray, could we? Father, we thank you for your grace that is sufficient in our every need. Lord, we lift our dear sister Marilyn up to you right now and ask you, Lord, just to minister to her, give her strength. Uh, Lord, uh, bring her full recovery from this little episode that she had. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for your presence. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. We come now in this study of the book of Romans to a passage that makes just a bit of a twist from where it has been. Up until this point, Paul has been dealing with the, the sin condition of the world. And he's dealt with it rather bluntly. He's dealt with it very directly. He's not, he's not pulled any punches, if you will, as he's talked about it and, and dealt with it. He's, he's made clear that I don't care if you are a rank pagan. I don't care if you are a moralist in the, in the uh, Gentile world. I don't care if you are a religionist and a Jew. It really does not matter that every person stands under the judgment of God. Every man, every woman stands in need of the Savior. I mean, he has, he has laid that out so clearly. He's, he's laid out what my New Testament professor, Curtis Vaughn, used to say in seminary. He used to say, Paul in chapters 1 through 3, verse 20 is laying out the doctrine of condemnation. And, and he, he doesn't paint a pretty picture. It's, it's a fairly bleak picture. He, he talks about how man, when left to his own devices, and that's mankind, woman left to her own devices, they pursue that which goes in a, in a way that is away from Christ, away from God, away from themselves. I, I, I read an article from this weekend in the Washington Post which was talking about we need to reconsider Adam and Eve. I mean, you see that all the time in secular papers, so I, I thought it was just another uh, thing talking about evolution, but it really wasn't. Uh, what he was talking about in our reconsidering of, of Adam and Eve is we need to reconsider the whole idea of forbidden fruit. And his last statement in that passage gave me chills. His last statement in that pa uh, passage in one of the premier newspapers in the United States of America said this, go ahead, eat the forbidden fruit. There is no God. You are God. Oh, wow. What, what a perfect example of, of what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 1, 1 through chapter 3, verse 20. In that whole passage, he's saying, listen, here's man's problem. Man's problem thinks he is God. Man's problem is that he wants to be God. Our problem is that we don't want God telling us what to do. We don't want God calling the shots in our life. We want to call our own shots. We want to do what we want to do. And we want to say, God, if you want to accept me as I am in that way, then be it, be it well and good. But I'm going to be what and who I want to be. And that's just a desire to be one's own 
God to rule in one's own life. Well, if Paul had left things with, at the end of verse 20, where he said, listen, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law only comes knowledge of sin. He said, listen, the, the knowledge of sin comes by being told no. By t- being told you shall not, thou shalt not, whatever your translation says. The knowledge of the law comes by saying, listen, this is how it must be, but you cannot live up to this is how it must be. You pursue yourself, you pursue your own desires. And Paul has made that emphatically clear. He said, in, in, you know, in verse 19, he said, Now we know that who, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, and all men are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Now what he has done in making that statement, and in the verses just preceding that, he's clearly shown that man is, has a problem legally, there is none righteous, no, not one. That is a legal statement. You, you stand before God unrighteous. Everybody in their own right, in their own way, does. So we have a legal problem. We have a thinking problem. In, in verse 11, he talked about our minds. No one understands. We have a motive problem. No one seeks for God. We have a will problem. We've turned aside altogether and we've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So our wills are affected, and even our tongues are affected. Even our speech is affected. When Paul says their throat is an open grave, and they use their tongues to deceive, they lie. And and lying is the most clear characteristic, if you will, of an unregenerate heart, of an, an unchanged person. The tongue just continues to deceive and lie, and their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. They run to to shed blood, their relationships are affected by it, but most of all, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Their attitude toward God is just what the writer in the article in the Washington Post was. Go ahead, eat the fruit, don't fear God, there is no God, you are God. And and that's exactly what Paul has illustrated to us in this doctrine of condemnation. Now, we live in a day that doesn't want to think about the doctrine of condemnation. That's why a lot of people won't preach through Romans. Because, I mean, to get to the good stuff, if you will, to get to the happy stuff in Romans, and it's there in abundance, but to get there, you've got to go through the bad stuff. You've got to go through the difficult stuff. You've got to go through the reality that man before God is unrighteous and, uh, and without Christ is hopeless and helpless and has nothing. Even in our day when we think we have everything. Even in our day when we think we have arrived in every single respect. The Apostle Paul says, I want you to understand there is only one thing that matters. The truth of the matter is, all human beings of every race and rank, of every creed and culture, Jews, Gentiles, the immoral and the moralizing, the religious and the irreligious, are without exception sinful. Inexcusable. And speechless, speechless before God. They have no defense. They cannot plead their case in an effective sort of way. They may try to plead it, but they can't. That's the condition that mankind finds himself in. 
And then we come to verses 21 through 26, that next paragraph. And, and this is what Paul says there. And, and he, he makes an immediate transition. You, you get the feel when you start reading verse 21 that Paul is going in this direction and he does an about face and he goes, he says, now, but. Use that word, but. It's always an important, you've heard me say before, one of the most important words in all of the scripture is the word but. Uh, you, you heard it read in the passage that, that Pastor Scott preached, uh, pre- read, didn't preach. I thought he was going to preach. I, I could see it in his eyes. He didn't want to just read that scripture, and I don't blame him. But in the passage that, that, that Pastor Scott read, he read about us being dead in our trespasses and sins, and then it comes that little verse that says, but God, but God being rich in mercy, but God being rich in his glorious grace and mercy, has done something to set right the condition of death and lostness and darkness that exists in our lives. So that's what he's doing here. He says in verse 21, But now, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. But the, righteous, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and they are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This is to show God's righteousness. Because, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And, and it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier. Both just and the justifier. The one of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. And we're going to talk about that just and the justifier for another couple of weeks. But, but I wanted you to hear that. Because this paragraph is so vitally important to understanding the book of Romans. It's so vitally important to understand Christianity. It's so vitally to understand your condition and your need before God. Everyone in here. If you're in Christ, this is the chapter. This is the paragraph in that chapter that you need to return to time and time and time again. Because from Romans 3.21 all the way through 8.39, all the way through the 8th chapter of this book, Paul is going to be talking about the grace of God in the gospel. He talks here about grace as a gift, that is a gift from God. Not something you earn, not something you can achieve on your own. It is a gift from God. His grace is a gift that can only be received by faith. And Paul said, in Ephesians chapter 2, and that itself is a gift from God that no man can boast. And we're going to talk about boasting in a few weeks. But, but the concept here is that we need to understand that the grace of God is in the gospel. And in chapters 3 and 4, he draws that grace down a little more specifically and he talks about God's righteousness being revealed. And there's a twofold revelation of God's righteousness. There is the revelation of God as being righteous, as being holy, as being totally other than we are, but there's also the revelation of His righteousness to us. 
His righteousness that is in us. His righteousness that is credited to us. And it's important to understand that or you'll miss the whole understanding of the Christian life. We live in what is many times called and known as the Bible Belt. We're on the outskirts. We're just kind of on the tip of the Bible Belt, if you will. But, But I grew up pretty close to the buckle of the Bible Belt in Alabama. I mean, it was, it was all about Bible Belt Christianity, which many times had no real similarity to biblical Christianity. Uh, and, and it still is, is sort of the, the thing in our world today that if we talk about being right with God, many people say, oh, I, I know I'm right with God because I'm doing the right things. I'm going to church, I'm tithing, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm doing what I need to do. I'm, I'm nice to other people. I try to live by the golden rule or I try to live by the Ten Commandments or anything. On and on and on you can go. There, there's this idea that I'm trying my best to be right with God. I have people sit in my office sometimes and say, well, you know, Bill, I'm, I'm doing my best to be a Christian. And, and my word to them always is, stop it. Just stop it. No, but I'm really trying hard. I'm, I'm really doing all that I can. I, I really want God to like me, and I want to do my best to be a, a, a Christian. I want to do my best to be a good Christian. And I say, well, stop it. And they look at me kind of weird. Kind of reminds me of that old Bob Newhart skit from the counselor who just, when they give him his problem, he'd just say, well, stop it, you know. The truth of the matter is, we can't stop sin And sadly, it seems like, especially in the Bible Belt, we can't stop trying hard to please God in a a very legalistic, very non-gospel sort of way. Paul has spent three chapters almost saying to us, you cannot do it. But now. But now. But now. God has revealed His righteousness. It has been manifested apart from the law. Paul suddenly breaks in and shows that God Himself has intervened and now seems to have a, a real threefold reference. It's a, it's a legal or a logical reference in, in developing the argument. It's a chronological reference in, in the present time as opposed to the past. And it also is eschatological. It's speaking that, that a new age has arrived. Something has changed in, in the whole scope of human history. And, and now, but now, there is a radical difference that must take place. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. It's, it's a fresh revelation, a, a fresh manifestation, a fresh unfolding, if you will, focusing on Christ and His cross. See, folks, one thing we have to really be sure we understand, and that is this. 2,000 years ago, when Christ hung on that cross on Calvary, the whole of human history came to its focal point right there. Everything before it, Paul says, the prophets and the law were all testifying to it. It's coming. 
It's, it's coming. Watch for it. Look for it. Desire it. Trust in it. It's coming. We're going to see in chapter 4 that, that Abraham, thousands of years before Jesus came, was saved and made right with God because he was looking to Jesus. He was looking to the cross. That had never happened. But he was testifying. He was pointing that that is coming. So, so the cross becomes the central matter. The cross becomes the central event of all of history. And in that, God's righteousness is revealed in that cross. Cranfield, the commentator, rightly calls this passage that we're looking at this morning, the center and the heart of the whole of this letter. Back in 1, 16 and 17, Paul gave us the theme of the letter, the gospel, and its power, and its revelation of the righteousness of God. But, but Cranfield is right, I think, when he says, but this paragraph, verses 21 through 26, are literally the center and the heart. Leon Morris, in his commentary, made the statement, this may very possibly be the most important single paragraph ever written. Thus the title of the sermon. Perhaps the most important paragraph in the Bible. But, but Leon Morris makes it even greater than that. He says, this is perhaps the most important paragraph ever written anywhere, at any time, by anyone. It is the most important thing to grasp and understand. If you don't grasp this, if you don't understand this, you will miss the essence of Christianity altogether. If you think Christianity is a set of do's and don'ts, if you think Christianity is trying hard to, to, to please God in your own strength, Paul is going to make, it, make you very uncomfortable here because he's going to say it's all by the grace of God in the cross of Christ, and that's really all that matters. It, it is a fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. He says, says it's been manifested apart from the law. Jesus didn't come and on the cross say, okay, I'm hanging here dying. Now, if you will obey the law that has been rightly given to you, then you can too be saved on the basis of my death here. He didn't say that. This righteousness of God on the cross is manifested apart from the law. He makes that very clear. But yet he says it's a fulfillment of all the Old Testament Scripture, which shows that the cross was not a divine afterthought. If you've been, if you've been in, in church and in different churches for very long, you've, you've probably run across somebody who said, you know, God tried to save people through the law, but man, man just would not obey. Man just would not follow, which they couldn't do. But God tried really hard through the law to save man. And, and since, since man could not be saved in his own strength through the law, then God had to come up with a different plan. And that different plan was to send his son into the world. And Jesus and the cross and, and, and that atonement is sort of God's plan B. If you ever hear anybody say that, I don't care if you're in a church service or talking on the street. Would you do me a favor? Just raise a hand scoured and, and just declare to the top of your lungs. I won't go to the top of my lungs because I'm amplified. But go to the top of your lungs. Heresy. Heresy. There, 
some people say, well, you know, we don't want to think about the Old Testament. We don't understand a lot of the Old Testament. It's, it's hard to grasp some of the things being said and being done in the Old Testament. We, we just don't want to do about the Old Testament. We want to just think about the gospel. We don't think about the New Testament. And that sounds good. But, folks, everything in the New Testament was testified to and pointed toward in the Old Testament. And it's good to see the continuity and the completeness of God's revelation. Yes, there is a progressive revelation. Yes, there is a growing revelation. But it's not a revelation from untrue to true. It's a revelation from, from embryo to fulfillment, to birth, when it's really shown in the, the coming of Christ and on the cross. It is indeed, I think, one of the most important paragraphs ever written. And then in verse 22, Paul shows us two truths about the gospel. He says, first of all, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The first truth about the gospel is that he's showing here is that it comes through faith in Jesus Christ. It's, it, it's through faith for all who believe. You know, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is a truth. And all who believe will be saved. That, that's that's kind of neat, I think, don't you? All, all, who, all are sinners in the sight of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But all who believe, anyone who believes, anywhere they believe, when they believe, when they truly put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they will be saved. Paul said that later in this chapter. When he said, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. There's no, you don't have to have a theology degree. You don't have to have a, you don't have to do a lot of stuff. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you confess with your lips, your mouth, that Jesus Christ is Lord. You will be saved. That's a promise that, that Christ makes. Our problem is, that idea of confessing him as Lord. Because real faith brings about a confession as Lord. You can say, I believe in Jesus all you want to. But if you say, I believe in Jesus, but I want to run my own life, you're a liar. And the truth is not in you. John, 1 John. If you say, I, I, I love God, I really love God, but I, I don't want to obey him by loving my fellow brother and sister. I don't want to obey him by... By, by repentance, I don't want to repay, obey him by seeking what he says I should be in Christ, then John says, you're, you're just a liar. And I know young people don't go around calling people liars. Mom and dad are going to be upset with me for telling, using that word in church probably, but that, it's just what the Scripture says. There's no hope apart from the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So Paul says that, that it comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. The second thing about this that, that Paul makes clear is that it is, that in these verses, is that now for the first time, the full-blown righteousness of God has been identified with justification. In, in verse 22, he says, The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe, and, and there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In verse 24, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forth as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. The righteousness of God before the cross 
was identified with God's holiness, and rightly so. It was identified with God's being absolutely pure, absolutely right, absolutely good in every respect. No no doubt about that. You think of Isaiah in chapter 6, when Isaiah goes to the temple and he sees a vision of the Lord high and lifted up, sitting on his throne, and the, the, veil, uh, the, the, the trains from his robe are, are, are flowing out and filling the temple, and the smoke is billowing forth, and the foundations of the temple are shaking, and, and Isaiah walks in there, and he sees this vision of God, and he says, Woe is me! And he falls on his face. Woe is me, for I've seen the glory of God. And the, the seraphim are circling around the throne of God saying, what are they saying? They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. They could have said, righteous, righteous, righteous is the Lord God. Or just, just, just is the Lord God. It would have communicated uh, an, another dimension, if you will. But holy carries all of those dimensions. Holy holy, holy. And Isaiah fell down and he, he thought he was going to die because he saw the holiness of God. He heard the holiness of God proclaimed and he knew God was holy. He knew he wasn't. And he thought he was going to die. Not just die, disintegrate right there before in the temple. Just disintegrate. God sent one of the seraphim over to the, to the altar where there were burning coals. He took the coal and he went over to Isaiah and he touched his lips. And he said, this coal from the altar has touched your lips. Your lips are now clean. You have now been forgiven. You have now been, in essence, justified. But he didn't understand all that justified stuff back then. But he understood God was holy, holy holy. And that's the the beauty of the Old Testament, just seeing the holiness of God. He doesn't tolerate. He doesn't doesn't suffer long with sin in the Old Testament. It says here he passed over, and we'll talk about that later, former sins, in order to get to the cross. But in the cross, you see this, this righteousness of God revealed in a way that's never been seen before. Because God said, I am a righteous God and you need my righteousness. You don't have any of your own. You don't have any. And and so in that we we see that that justification begins to to be proclaimed clearly. That was the problem back in in, in chapter 3 verses 10, 11, and 12. That we were not just and, and we... We, we were guilty, legally guilty, and now Paul uses this legal word to say that you have been justified, and it's, it's a two-pronged thing. We, we tend to think of the cross and salvation as being simply pardon. We have been pardoned for our sins. We've been forgiven. We had all these sins, our, as we sang earlier, our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. Yeah. Our sins are forgiven in Christ. His mercy is greater than our sins. 
And we think about it just being as, as a pardon. And that, that's sort of a, a negative side of justification. And negative can be good. I don't mean negative in a bad way. But it, it's negative. It, it's the remission of a penalty. It, it's the remission or a forgiveness of a debt that is owed. And Paul uses those, that imagery all through his epistles. But justification is the positive. Justification is the positive. The negative is forgiveness, pardon. Your, your sins are, are washed away. But let me tell you something. If you just have your sins forgiven temporarily, you're not qualified for heaven. Do you know that? Because heaven is not just there. Being with Christ after death or after His second coming... It's not just being there saying, oh, my sins were forgiven. There has to be righteousness. You have to have righteousness to stand before God. And, and that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, here's the positive thing. Justification is a positive thing. It's the bestowal of a righteous status. It's the sinner's reinstatement in the favor and fellowship of God. You can look at it as adoption into his family. You can look at it as being given, uh, given something to your account, written to your account, and that's exactly what it is. God says, I'm going to impute to you the righteousness of Christ. He sang about that. He, he, he was, and we heard it read, he was tempted just as we are, yet without sin. He was tempted in every manner that we are. He said, well, no, 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 man. Jesus didn't even have the internet. He doesn't know how, how we're tempted today. He didn't have movies. He didn't have television. Oh, no, no. You know, you, you, if you think that's the temptation, if you think that's new, then, then you don't understand the Scripture. The Scripture says he was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. In, in Hebrews, he's talking about he was tempted with the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He who was, who was God was tempted with lust of flesh. Take the, by Satan himself. These stones here, you fasted 40 days, 40 nights, you're hungry, eat and turn these stones into bread and eat. You're the son of God, you can do that. Piece of cake, easy work. And Jesus said, but the scripture says, man shall not live by bread alone. And Satan was defeated by the word of God. Well then, then look, let's go up on this pinnacle of the temple you know let's let's show the people who you really are let's let's make a scene here go up on the pinnacle of the temple and throw yourself off like you're committing suicide or something on the pinnacle of the temple but you know the scripture says that God will not even allow you to dash your feet that he'll send angels and they'll swoop under you and they'll set you down easy Jesus off oh, the word also says that you shall not tempt the Lord your God bam defeated again then he was taken up on the, the mountainside. Remember that by Satan? He said, see all of this land, see all of these worlds, they're yours. I'm going to give them to you if you'll just bow down and worship me. Isn't that ludicrous? They were all his. Satan just didn't realize it. Just, just bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, You'll have no other gods before me. That's what God says. And I will not worship you 
and I'll not tempt God with my actions, and I'll not, I'll not eat something that's not the word of God when really that's the real nourishment. And every time he was tempted, and it, I, I think through his life he had other temptations fit in it, but all of those fit. Every temptation you go through will be either the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the boastful pride of life. Every one of them. And he had all of those. And yet without sin. And, and so because of that, when we receive that gift of grace and we receive that gift of faith and we, we place our faith in Christ alone, then, then to justify is to, to declare or pronounce righteous. To declare or pronounce us righteous. Not make us righteous. That, that was the big Debate during the Reformation. We've just been talking about the Reformation, coming to the 500th anniversary. The, the, that was the rub, if you will, during Reformation time with Luther and the church. You know, the church's view expressed to the Council of Trent in 1545 through 64 was that justification takes place at baptism. And at baptism, the baptized person is cleansed of sin and cleansed of sins. And at that point, he is also simultaneously infused with a new supernatural righteousness. It's not that he was declared righteous in the church's view. He was made righteous. And now he he was a righteous person. So long as he continued to do all that he had to do through the sacraments and and the mass and and everything. As long as you keep doing stuff, then then you're a righteous person. And, And Luther came along and said, no, the scripture says... The just shall live by faith, and that there is a, there is a declaration of justified by God. And, and, and you stand there in, in the grace of God before the Lord Jesus Christ, and he takes your sin away, but he does more than that. He forgives you of your sin, but he does more than that. He gives you, he declares you righteous, and he adds it to your account. It's an old illustration. I've used it a hundred times. But it's as though tomorrow, let me let you give it to me. You went to my bank and you deposited in my account a million dollars. If you can do that, please do. Um, and and you, you added it into my account. It's not mine. I, I, I didn't have any reason to get that. I didn't deserve that. And, 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 but it's there. And, and you know what? Now that it's there, I can use it. I can draw on it. It's, it's mine. But it was just added to my account. That's where we are in justification. We stood before the judgment bar of God. And because of our faith in Christ, because of his grace, he, said, he looked at me. He looked at Bill Haynes, a wretched sinner. A wretched sinner that I will not recount for you, the wretchedness. But so were you. And he said, not guilty. What? Not not guilty. I am guilty. No, not guilty. Why am I not guilty? Because my son has covered you, has added to your account his righteousness. And yeah, you still are 
a mess. But I now see you because of faith, I, your faith in Christ. I see you through, through my son who is altogether righteous. You see, justification is a new status. Carries with it adoption into his family, but it's a new status. You, you go from darkness to light. You go from death to life, just like the passage in Ephesians says. You once were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were just like everybody else. You were a mess, but God, being rich in mercy, has now redeemed you through the blood of his Son. It's a new status. Regeneration, which comes, it's not identical with justification, but it is simultaneous with justification. We are declared just, we're declared righteous and added to our account by, by the judge God himself, but then simultaneously we are regenerated. We're born again. We, we are given a new nature. We are given a new life. We are given the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life through regeneration. But, but that regeneration is something that begins the process that Paul will get to much later in this sec section, and that is sanctification, growing. And how do you know, how, what is the proof of justification? Well, the true proof of justification is faith in Christ that issues forth in a changing of life. But Paul says, I want you to understand this. The source of our justification, the source of you being made right with God, is not you. It's not your good deeds. It's not how many times you go to church. It's not how much money you dropped in the offering plate when, about earlier. It's not how many little old ladies you help across the street. Not how much you give to your favorite charity. None of that's the source of your justification. The source of your justification is the grace of God. God, rich in grace, rich in mercy. And if you stand in Christ today, you are a different person. You're not like Paul described in these verses any longer in, in, in your status. Oh, there's some you're still trying to work through and there's still sin there. And let me tell you something. If, if, if Satan comes to you today and says, you know, uh, you know, do you remember what you did back then? Do you remember all those things you used to do? You can't really possibly believe God can forgive you for that. Here's all I want you to say to Satan. That's all you have to say to him. But now. Yeah, you're right. I was terrible. But now. I stand not in my own merit. I stand in the merit of Jesus Christ alone. I have been justified. I have been dealt the judgment before the judge of all the universe and creation. And yes, I've still got growing to do. And yes, I'm still struggling at times. But my God is faithful to change my life and grow me through the process of sanctification if I am in Christ. Period.
Paul says, now the righteousness, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. But the law and the prophets pointed to it. It's all about the cross. It's all about the cross. We're about to enter into the season of the year where we're going to think it's all about the cradle. We're going to talk about Christmas and the incarnation. We're going to still talk about Romans through all that, ser- that, that season, but, I, but you're going to see it all around you. That's what it's all about. But as the song says, and as I say many times, don't ever forget, it's the cross that is behind the cradle. And if there is no cross, the cradle is meaningless. And if there is no cross, there is no Christian life. If there is no cross, there is no forgiveness and there is no justification. Paul's going to deal more about that, looking at God as a just God. And how in the world can a truly holy, just God forgive you for all that you've done? Or me for all that I've done? By grace, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. One word goes with those. What? Alone. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Jesus plus something equals nothing. Let's pray.